We turn to chapter 6 then of this second uh, book of Kings. It's a very brief portion that we read, just the seven verses. And uh, the theme of, uh, of our meditation this night is simply some things can't be taught. Some things can't be taught. Our world is consumed with learning knowledge more and more these days. Uh, much emphasis is placed upon education, and, and rightly so in the, in the right places. Uh, but uh, no matter how hard you try and learn about experience, uh, you can't uh, teach it. You can't train uh, for experience. Schools don't really train our young people uh, for the big world out there, which they one day will venture out and take responsibility for their lives and find their independence and seek to uh, find their place in society. Uh, schools don't give them those particular uh, critical life skills that they are immediately confronted with when they leave school and university and go into uh, the sphere of work. It doesn't really teach them how to manage money and how to negotiate and all about the intricacies of relationships. Most of these things are learned by experience. Saul of Tarsus himself was one of the most knowledgeable religious uh, uh, disciples of his day in the Judaism religion. And uh, with all his knowledge, his experience of God was lacking. And it wasn't until he went on that road to Damascus and had that wonderful, uh, miraculous encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that all that learning and all that knowledge and all those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, so to speak, uh, became one piece. Uh, and uh, his experience of the living Christ blew his mind, so to speak. And he had a revelation of the person of, of God himself and entered into that living, vital relationship uh, which uh, he hadn't had up to that point in time. Remember Naaman uh, in the previous chapter here in 2 Kings chapter 5, he wasn't even a Jew. <laughs> he wasn't even a religious man. He was the commander of, of uh, the Syrian uh, army. He had no knowledge of God. And yet he experienced God in a remarkable way uh, through eventually being obedient to the voice of the prophet as he went down into those uh, into the river of Jordan. He was reluctant to experience the touch and the power of God. He, he was unhappy with what God's word was saying to him. Um, we've got cleaner waters in Damascus. Why do I have to go down into the, into the filthy water of the Jordan? And yet, unless he went down in accordance with the word of God, he would never ever experience what his life stood in need of. Not only physical healing, but that encounter uh, with the living God, with the God of Israel. You and I can be taught about Christianity. We can come week in and week out. We can do so many courses and, uh, and much learning concerning the Bible. And, and yet, unless you and I experience the power of this book and the power of a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is meaningless. We're still a religious spectator on the sidelines, looking on from a distance. <laughs> but when uh, we experience the power of God and the life of God burning down within our soul, then that makes all the difference. These sons of the prophets here in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, this little group uh, of the disciples, so to speak, of the prophet Elisha, they were being taught 
in the school of the prophet. A remarkable, wonderful experience. But what they too needed to experience was the power that the prophet was showing and revealing to them before their very eyes. They needed to experience the power of his teaching for themselves. So this little story here sandwiched in these seven verses between the great affairs of the international uh, affairs of Syria and Israel and Israel and Syria and all the skirmishes that went on around them. We, we sandwiched here a little natural story uh, and yet our attention is drawn not to the natural but to the miraculous, to the spiritual reality that's going on here. And through this little story, through this window, so to speak, we are drawn to that much bigger story, the eternal story about Jesus Christ and the demonstration and experience of his power that is needed in all our lives. The natural is important, but the natural is the framework whereby we begin uh, to learn about the realities of the spiritual uh, realm. Remember uh, our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, how he used parables time and time again. Why? It was the natural environment. They all knew about agriculture. <laughs> they all knew about plowing and sowing uh, and, uh, and watering and waiting. They understood it all. Now Jesus says, well, let's take that. <laughs> And now let's raise it heavenwards. Let's bring heaven down and put the meat on the bone, so to speak. Because the spiritual and the eternal was the most important uh, thing too. What affects you and I mostly is, is the realm of the natural, the personal, the mundane, the intimate, the detail of life's experience. Not so much the world affairs of international fallings of out, fallings out of countries one with the other. Yes, those things affect us as it, the drip feed comes down into our pound shillings and pence, so to speak, with bigger bills. Of course it is. But the beautiful thing here through these few verses, through the life of these sons of the prophets, uh, is, is the uh, providence of God flowing down to an individual life. So the first thing that we see uh, through this window, so to speak, is the people of God. Here in verse 1, the, the sons of the prophets are this little uh, group of God's people. They are insignificant. Uh, they, they're nameless. Uh, they're in the minority uh, compared to the Syrian army and to the, uh, the, the armies of uh, Israel. And yet through this window we see that God is actively involved in the lives of this little group. He has chosen them to be his people. He's called them to be his living witnesses uh, in the world. And he doesn't abandon his people, however small they are, however insignificant, however nameless. We think God needs a lot of people to do a work. And yet how often do we have to remind ourselves that one with God is in the majority and God is looking for that man or woman who will take hold of his, of his word and who will embrace it by faith and will feed on it. You and I struggle. Well, Elijah struggled, didn't he? <laughs> what was Elijah's testimony? I, only I, am left of all the people of God. And God said, hey, wake up. I got 7,000 down the road who haven't bowed the knee. 
And even the great prophet Elijah had to be taught that one with God is in the majority. And so these sons of the prophets, they, they're blessed. They have the word of God. They are being taught at the feet of the prophet. They have the presence of God with it. But how they were to experience these things depended on their obedience or their disobedience to the word of God. It's a little window for us to see uh, in, in a microcosm, the, the local church, so to speak, and how in this little church uh, we see all the purposes and work of God in a small sense, which is uh, manifested there on the universal and the global uh, eternal church as well. It is a window to see them, they're training, they're, they're being faithful uh, to what they have received, the path that God has taken them down. Uh, they, they're seeking to further the purposes of God. They're expressing a unity. Our place where we dwell is too small. Let's go to the Jordan. Let's build a bigger place. Let's further the purposes of God. We want to remain in the center and will of God. And we see this people of God. We see it throughout Holy Scripture. Wherever we stop in the, in the realm of Scripture, we find the people of God, small or great. The Acts of the Apostles, with all that was going on, they weren't a great number of people. Yes, there was 3,000 saved on, on the day of Pentecost, but those who prepared the way, their numbers were very small uh, indeed. And yet they were God's people and God was working through them. Come with me to the Isle of Patmos and to the vision of John the Apostle as he has that glorious vision into the throne room of heaven. And what does John have a vision of? <coughs> he has a vision of the people of God <laughs> around the throne. What an encouragement. That however small a people of God, God will get his people to the end, so to speak. He will fulfill his purposes in the world. He will accomplish it. The souls that he saves in time will be there in eternity, safe in the Savior's hand. It's a glorious reminder to us, a glorious window of hope that wherever we look in Scripture, whatever point in history, God has a people and then secondly, God has a prophet. That's fairly obvious here in verse 1 again. Elisha by name. We can skip over it very easily, but we must remind ourselves wherever the prophet is, there is the word of God. There is the power of God to be demonstrated. The prophet in the Old Testament didn't have a minor part to play. They were the major agents of God and his purposes being manifested in the world. Even in the, the leaders uh, of foreign nations and our commanders of armies, they were engaged in that wonderful ministry, furthering the purposes of God in individual lives and the relationship of nations. It's a window. For us to see how the Old Testament prophets laid down the ground and, and did the spade work, so to speak, pointing forward in history to the ultimate prophet who would come, even our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All that the Old Testament prophets taught the people, ah, there was one who would come. And he would be the fulfillment of the prophetic ministry itself. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the one who tells us as it is. We know what it's like in the world. 
But he tells us why it's like it is in the world. And he shows us where the answer is to why the brokenness of the world as it is, the sinful nature, the rebelliousness of God, the broken relationship with God. And Jesus says, I have come. And I am the ultimate prophet, the ultimate one who will teach you, the ultimate one who brings the illumination upon the Old Testament prophecy and promise and the illumination of the truths that were deep there in the Old Testament scriptures. And he brings it all to its fullness and into his power in his own body and in his life and the miracles that he performs and the power that is demonstrated through him as the ultimate uh, prophecy. He tells us of our impotency, our inability, and he brings us the truth of where we might find such a source of power to help us in the time of need. Christ tells us the way back to God, Christ tells us there is only one, only one way. He tells us there is only one Savior. He tells us he is the final sacrifice, the final lamb to be slain for the atonement of our sins. He tells us the truth, the unchanging nature of the truth, yesterday, today, and forever, ever the same. And we would be ignorant of such glorious eternal truths if we didn't have windows of Old Testament prophets to help us understand who the ultimate prophet would be and the ultimate teaching would come from. Moving on quickly, thirdly, here in verse 2, there is a place mentioned, the place of God. It is a window uh, to see the emphasis that God puts upon places in Scripture for all people of all times to see the place where they had been dwelling and studying and and, uh, living was come too small. And it's lovely to see this little church outgrowing their building. Uh, And they need to move on to this place called the Jordan. And and they're going to build a bigger place. We're going to take beams and make a new place where we may dwell. But the place mentioned is the Jordan. It's a very special place, isn't it, in Old Testament history, as well as the New Testament. Uh, These sons of the prophets, they knew the value of the Jordan. Naaman, the Syrian commander, knew the value of the Jordan River as he went down into its murky waters. Elijah the prophet, he he was uh, taken home by God in that chariot of fire and the whirlwind uh, with those horses as he went through the waters of Jordan. And Elisha comes behind him. He comes to the Jordan in his despair. And yet it is at this place, the Jordan, where he experiences not only the mantle falling to the ground as he picks it up, but he experiences the power. The power of God at the Jordan uh, River. In the New Testament, the Jordan played much, uh, had much value John the Baptist comes to the Jordan with his baptizing. Jesus comes to the Jordan. Much happens as if God is saying, I am am placing all these remarkable accounts and situations in the lives of people who have been blessed through the river Jordan, playing this important role, as if to say it's like a window to another important place where there is such tremendous value given that God has put upon it, and that place is called Calvary. Calvary. There is no other place. 
God draws our attention to special places. He says where he is to be found. Where he is to be found. Where the power of God is to be found. Where the place of atonement is to be found. It is at this place called Calvary. Calvary. It covers it all. My past with its sin and shame. My guilt and despair. Jesus took on him there. Where? Calvary. It covers it all. The value of the place called Calvary. Sadly, people today, as they have throughout history, have wanted to allocate different places. They're happy to go to other places to cleanse their sins. But they're not willing to come to their place where the value has been placed upon it, where God has put his name and testified to the offering, the final offering that was made there. It is at Calvary that he displays his holiness. It is at Calvary the heinousness of our sins are laid bare upon our Saviour. But oh, the value of it, the blessing that flows from the place called a Calvary. Fourthly, uh, and quickly, uh, there's this power here in verse 6. There is power. They've gone to uh, the Jordan and they're starting to build this new building. They're cutting down uh, the trees and uh, this one man's iron axe head, it falls into the water and he, and he cries out. He said, Master, it was borrowed. It was borrowed. Well, we've all been there, isn't it? We tried to do a job quickly and borrowed somebody else's tool and we've broken it or we lost it or whatever and, oh, your heart doesn't go to the floor. It goes right through the floor. And it's a, it's, well, axe heads cost a few shillings in those days, quite obviously. Uh, and, and it was such a burden to him. And he's lost it. And, and he turns to Elisha and Elisha says, well, where did it fall? The man showed him where it fell in the place in the river. What does Elisha do? He cuts a stick and he throws it in and he made the iron uh, float. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. See, up to this point, they've been getting on with the job in their, in their natural, normal way. They haven't needed, so to speak, uh, the power of God to help them. We can all pick up a tool. We can all pick up the cleaner in the church. <laughs> oh, perhaps that's a sword subject, sorry. We can all do something. We don't need the outpouring of the Spirit of God to do what we're able to do and being gifted to do. But this man was in need of something which he didn't have any answer to. Why is it in our Bible, this account, this demonstration of the power of God. See, many people ridicule this account and they dismiss it. It's just, well, Elisha just cut off a bigger stick, I expect, and he, he kind of dragged it to the surface of the water within the man's reach and there was no miracle at all. It, that's what you do, isn't it? You make the best of it. But the thing about Scripture is it, it only gives us certain accounts. And the accounts that you and I need in Scripture are accounts of the power of God. They're accounts of miracle. 
of lives being touched by the intervention of God in the everyday, common day things of life. We don't need accounts in Scripture of lost property. Have you lost your phone? <laughs> no. When you do, which chapter and verse for losing our phones? <laughs> lost your wallet? It must be in the Old Testament somewhere. No, 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 no. We need accounts of miracle. We need accounts of changed lives throughout the realm of history to see what the power of God has done in individual hearts, in rebellious hearts, in military lives, in lives which were desperate and run ragged by the power and wickedness of sin, lives which are destroyed by the disease of leprosy, lives which are destroyed by losing their sight or their limbs, and the power of God comes and brings healing and restoration. Those are the accounts we need. And here... This poor man, he's lost his accent and he's gone down into the depth of the water. And we have the account. By the power of the prophet, this iron axe head floats uh, to the top of the water within his sight. See, the devil, you know what your experience is like after I've been preaching perhaps on a Sunday or on a Monday morning and you get the little whispers on your shoulder. You think you're a Christian after all you said yesterday. And look at the mess your life is in. And he reminds you that you're still a sinner. And I remind him, yes, but I'm a saved sinner. And I'm on my way to heaven. And Christ has given his blood for me. And Christ has redeemed me. And Christ is causing me to grow in grace. Stumblingly, falteringly perhaps. But Christ will get me ultimately uh, to heaven. But the devil wants to tell you you've lost something which you can never get back. You've lost your relationship with God and you can never get back into heaven. Uh, no, these are the accounts that we need. Accounts which bring us hope because our God is on the throne and because our God is almighty and he is all power and there is nothing too hard for our God and his providential care for his dear children is such that if you lose your accent and it was borrowed and your heart is aching over something, your God hears your prayer and attends to your every need, however small, however insignificant to the world and even to others. And yet God's heart is touched with your heartache. So we have these accounts of the power of God. See, these, these sons of the prophets, if they hadn't had this experience, witnessed it with their own eyes, saw the power of the prophet, they would have continued on in the work of God just as it was before, making as good a job as they could. But now they've experienced something that they couldn't be taught. And now they can't continue with the work without the power of the Spirit of God. They know the difference. They've experienced it. And all that they have been taught now is coming to bear down upon their souls and make perfect, blowing their minds open, illuminating their minds to the greatness of the power of their God. Lastly here, fifthly, 
perhaps if I told you there were five points, you might have bolted for the door by now, but uh, we're, we're there, we're almost there now. Verse 7, the principle. The principle is here. It's a window for us to see this, this foundational truth of the principle of Holy Scripture, the principle which is the basis for our life with God, for our belief in God, and the principle is faith in God. It is exercising our faith in God. What does Elisha say to this man? As this axe head there is on the top of the water, he says, pick it up for yourself. Pick it up for yourself. And the man reaches out and he picks it up for himself. That's the principle. <laughs> Why couldn't God have put the axe head back on the shaft and put it back in the man's hand and finished the job? He could have, couldn't he? Quite easily. But no. See, God won't do for you what you can do for yourself. God wants you to reach out. And he wants you, when he puts bread on the table, he wants you to pick it up. And he wants you to eat it yourself. Nobody else can eat you a bread. The bread that God gives for your soul is for your soul. The water that flows from heaven into your life is to quench your thirsting. That it might flow through you into other lives as well. But the principle is, uh, you pick it up for yourself. <laughs> Nobody else can do it for you. We're going to come to prayer shortly. Nobody else can pray for you in that sense. Yes, you can ask prayer for your needs from others. Of course you can. But the real beauty and value of prayer is God wants you to pray. He wants to hear your voice. He wants you to pour your heart. He wants you to come in faith. And he wants to see you exercising your faith in the revealed word of God, that what God has said, you believe it, and you are living by it, and you're embracing it and feeding on it, and drinking at this fountain which never runs dry. So, some things can't be taught. They have to be experienced. And praise God, God is still working out his purposes in the world. He's working out his purposes through his people, throughout the realm of the nations of the world. And you are here in your small corner and me in mine. And we feel so insignificant on times. You're seeking to serve him as best you can. And yet you know you cannot move on from this point unless God is with you. And unless all that you have, you have known of him becomes your experience moment by moment and day by day. If the devil tells you you've lost it all, you tell him and remind him of what he's lost. He's lost the presence of God for all eternity. He's lost the privilege of the blessing of God. He has lost the blessing, but he's in, embraced the judgment of God for all uh, eternity. What a reminder to us, through a few brief verses, that there is hope in this world. There is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a door that is open, and all may go in. It is at Calvary's cross 
is where you begin. That's where the experience starts. Have you been to Calvary for the cleansing flow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?